Episode 51 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. All right, guys, it's uh, Peter Hornfeld here. You might know me as uh, Mentor Pilot. I hope you're all doing absolutely fantastic. Uh, well, I do a lot of things, but uh, I run my YouTube channel, which is about aviation, and I also work as a line training captain and a base type rating examiner for my airline on the Boeing 737-800. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today, I am talking with Mentor Pilot. This is by far one of the most requested people that I've had on this episode as I've received so many DMs, emails asking me to get Petter on. Please get Petter on. I want to hear his story. Whether you're a European follower or an American follower, you will truly love his story and how he became a pilot. It's very interesting to hear the different side of aviation, to hear the European side of aviation and the differences between EASA and FAA or before EASA came about when Mentor Pilot started his training a couple years ago. Some of the things that we find out in Mentor Pilot training are how he knew he wanted to be a pilot at a very young age. We talk about how you're very fortunate to figure out when you want to be a pilot early in your career because you can focus as hard as you want and focus all of your attention on that one goal to become a pilot and you can set yourself up for a very, very early and successful career. We talk about how Petter became a firefighter in his training. We talk about how Petter climbed the ladder at his airline and is now a simulator instructor. We also talk about proper CRM and how to manage emergencies. And most importantly, we talk about the 1500 hour rule. We talk about kind of the negative aspects of the 1500 hour rule and how you don't have to have a 1500 hour rule, how a 250 hour well-trained pilot can perform just as well as someone with 1500 hours. Aviation Nation, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Leave me an email at pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. And if you love the podcast and you want to get a sticker or you just want to support the podcast, check out our page. Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot to pilot. I don't want to leave you guys waiting any longer. So without further ado, here's Mentor Pilot. Hey, Petter, how you doing? Thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm finishing up. I'm on day nine of 10 days off right now. So I'm getting ready to prepare myself to go back to work. Well, they... Nine out of ten, you say? Yeah, it's this is very I, uh, rare. <laughs> yeah, this is very rare because I I very rarely have any any time more than three days in a row. I know. That's how I, that's how I am as well. Usually it's uh, fly for five days or fly for six or seven days, and you have four days off or five days off. But for somehow the scheduling gods gave me ten days off in a row, so I'm not complaining at all. Well, be be um, be very happy about it. <laughs> for sure. Appreciate it for what it is. I'm very appreciative because <laughs> it will never happen again. <laughs> well, cool. Let's go ahead and get started. I want to know more about you. I want to know more about why you got into aviation in the first place. All right. Yeah. Um, so I, from a very early age, um, I did not want to be a pilot. <laughs> I actually wanted to be an archaeologist when oh, I was cool. um, when I was younger. But um, my my dad he uh, was working for a insurance company up in northern Sweden and the, um, the, the you know northern Sweden is huge there's yeah. a lot of, of travel that needs to be done so he thought at some at some point that it would be great to get a private pilot license um, to be able to fly in between the different cities where he was working in um, so he did he managed to um, he managed to get that and he took me along on. You know, a few of the uh, the flights he did, and I helped him with the flight planning and 
and all of that. And you know, from there, there was a little bit of a of an aviation bug seed starting to grow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what what really kicked it off was that for my 14th birthday, uh, they my parents gave me a test lesson. Um, and I I took it on a, a beautiful, crisp, clear autumn evening together okay. with uh, the flight instructor that was teaching my my dad to fly. His name was Mats Hagenwald. And uh, we we took his Cessna 172 out. You know, you know, one of those evenings when there is not a movement in the air. Yes, the perfect day to fly. Um, the perfect day to fly. And this was in in Sweden in the autumn, which means the days are fairly short. So mm-hmm. we we took off maybe in four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Flew in, flew for a little bit. Well, it felt like it took nothing, but it was probably <laughs> around an hour. Um, and it was starting. The sun was starting to set, and we flew home over my hometown and over my home little village there. And on the way back, uh, when I thought that he was going to take over control, he didn't. So he just talked me, kind of patted me through the approach all the way into landing, and, and let me land the aircraft. And after that, it was all over. You know, then, <laughs> then, then the, uh, the 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 bug had taken over completely. Yeah, no, for sure. I remember my first flight. And as soon as we took off, I mean, I feel like it's the same as everyone. You you look left, you look right, you see your shadow get smaller and smaller, and you're like, oh shoot, we're doing this, we're flying. This is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. That it's a very specific feeling. It's mm-hmm. like you you when you are bit by the um, by the aviation bug. You know it. You you know it instantaneously. And after that, there's pretty much nothing else you want to do. That's crazy. You got that exact. Nothing can fulfill that. That what that bug gives you in life, other than aviation. If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it's 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 fantastic that way. Yeah. But anyway, one when that happened, um, I had the the good fortune of being very young. Um, and, and I get this this question a lot about people who want to fly because they're 13 years old. When can I get my licenses mm-hmm. and stuff? And what I always tell them is that. You're very fortunate to to find this uh, this goal in life that early, because that means that you now have plenty of time to kind of concentrate what you need to do in school. Mm-hmm. Um, you need you know which subjects that you need to improve in. You know what grades you need to get, and you have the possibility to do that early on. Um, so you can focus all of that energy that only like a 14 year old with an obsession has <laughs> into into schoolwork, which it would have been focused on girls and having fun and slacking, you know. Yeah, doing that, typical that, teenager now, stuff. Exactly. Now you can turn all of that into something that's really constructive. Um, and that's going to help you whether or not you reach your target or not. It's going to help you a great deal from an early age. And, I mean, you can't lift your, your CPL until you're um, 18 anyway. Okay. It's so, 18 so you get your CPL? Yeah, 18 okay. CPL here. Well, in Sweden, when I took it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can start. You can start working on it before then, but you can't lift the, the certificate until you're 18. Okay. Cool. So, um, but all of that time can be spent both focusing on your on your schoolwork, but also researching. You know, how can I achieve this goal? What is the best way for me? What works with my financial uh, background? With the time that I have available. How right. can I do this? So it's it's great. The earlier you can start, the better it is. Exactly. So what was that kind of process for you? I know on my podcast, I've talked to a very select amount of European pilots or any pilots outside of America. So kind of what is the process? What was the process for you specifically and how you went about it? Like, how do you do you go about loans? Do you, is it similar to the American side or how, how does everything go? 
Um, I think that there are, well, I know that there are very big similarities between the American and the, uh, the European system. Now, I, I was very fortunate to grow up in Sweden. And uh, Sweden have, among other things, a, uh, a government-sponsored pilot program, no which means that if you, if, <laughs> yeah, you apply to that and you manage to be among the lucky few who get in, uh-huh. then they will they will foot the bill for the entire training up and including MCC. What's required of you after that? Um, in order to get a job, you mean? Well, do they like require you to work for a Swedish airline, or do you have to like give them back <laughs> anything in return? That's the beauty of it. No. Oh my gosh! No, this is this this is um, basically the way that they they have been looking at this is that they pay for the uh, for the schooling of uh, pretty much any kind of occupation out there. So, if you want to become a doctor, or you want to become a plumber, or you want to become an engineer, they will they will sponsor that as well up mm. to a certain extent. Yeah. So the 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 thinking was well, why would we? force professional pilots to pay for it when we're paying for everyone else right um but i should be saying that that there is a very when i applied there was only 30 spots available in the country um to get into so it's a very very select few but um but this is what i was getting to in the beginning which is when when i figured out that this is what i wanted to do well then i started looking into what kind of avenues is there what kind of roads can bring me to this ultimate goal and um and I kind of very quickly found out about this sponsor program, and I asked my uh, my guidance, you know, the guidance counselor about. So how 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 do I get this? I want this. I really <laughs> want this. <laughs> I don't. Uh, and he said, well, the only the the first thing they do is they select people on their grades. So the the people that apply, they look at the ones with the highest grades, and the highest grades get selected to the first wow. first kind of interview. So. That was my goal set. I knew that in order for me to be absolutely 100% sure to be called for an interview, I needed to have a perfect score on my grades. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's that's what I did. I went from a, a very average student. Um, at the time, we had a, a, a grade scale that went from uh, one, which was the worst, to five, which was the best. Um, and I think I had an average, this was when I was 14, of 3.5, which okay. is good, good average, good, you know. Yeah. And in a year and a half, I lifted that up to 4.3. Okay. Uh, and then the first year of the Swedish gymnasium, which is like junior college in mm-hmm. the States, um, that first year, that's when they determined, that's where the, the grades were set that I was going to apply on. Uh, then I had a perfect score. Nice. That's incredible. It's yeah, crazy so that, what, what you do when you have a goal in mind. So it's like you said, you need to want you need to get in if you you're at an advantage if you know you want to do this earlier because like you said, you could plan and you knew what you had to do to get your goal and that was able to give you probably free training where a lot of people are kind of have all this debt to pay back, but you were able to achieve the goal of getting a government sponsored pilot training, which is incredible. Yeah, because I mean I don't I don't come from a wealthy background. Mm-hmm. Um I mean we I come from a from a from an average well-off um, family, right. but to have to, there was no chance of, of them forking out one hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something yeah. for my flight training. I mean, right. that, uh, if I wouldn't have gotten into this, that would have mean, meant me going down the modular route at a later age. But as you know, when you're fourteen years old, the only thing you want to do is start your future. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so this was by far when I was looking at all of the different options of, of which are very similar. Some are very similar to ones you have in the states. Uh-huh. Um, this was by far the best one. Um, so if I could guarantee, if I could get myself in there, then that would have been, you know, that would have been absolutely awesome. And it was yeah. absolutely awesome. 
So um, I managed to get to that first screening. I've never been so nervous in my entire life, neither before nor after. Uh, and the problem was, of course, that if, when you've been building up against this one interview from when you were 14 until you're 17, yeah. and I mean, three years you've been living, breathing, thinking only about this then there is a slight chance that you might might over stress yourself you know exactly. that you might shoot a little bit past the car target which is what i did <laughs> i i didn't do as well as i was as, as i had hoped on the, that interview oh, no. not at all uh but but i managed to do well enough to um to, to squeeze in anyway nice. and uh, yeah so that means that meant that i moved away from home when i was uh, just turning well i was 16 turning 17 I, uh, I moved away. It's about um, 600 kilometers away from where I was living at the time, mm-hmm. down down to this uh, this flight school, which was is it also in the same country. A, yeah, it's okay. it's in Sweden. Okay. It's in a place. It's still there. Uh, I don't think they do this like uh, the training from this young age. There's it's a slightly higher age that you that you um, uh, apply into now, mm-hmm. but it's it's similar in the way that it's still government sponsored. Um, but I did that. It meant that I, I had to do my flight training together with my uh, my degree in natural science. That was part of my uh, well. I mean, we have it's called gymnasium in Swedish. It's kind of like your college, but not really. Okay. It's a little bit different. Sounds like it's at a younger uh, age. It is at younger age. Yeah. I mean, sixteen to eighteen, okay. typically eighteen, nineteen. Um, so I did that, and that was that, that was that was probably the f- most fun I've ever had. Uh, during those years, you can imagine yourself yeah. being seventeen, flying <laughs> yeah. an aircraft, like absolutely crazy. So, uh, so that's that, that's how I I got to it. Now, to your question, whether or not you can pay for your training and do it like the integrated way, yeah, um, yeah you can do that, and you okay. can do that at, at this school as well. It was just this government-sponsored program is a very very small part of the people who become pilots in Sweden who go gotcha. through that. What um so you got the government sponsorship you're 17 you're going down to uh, start your training is it the same exact training as what someone with the integrated model has is it private instrument commercial and then ATP or I think restricted ATP do you still take all the same courses Yeah we okay. did um it, it has changed since then because they realized that the the workload that they put these 17 year olds under was way too high it was way <laughs> too many hours Yeah uh, but when I did it, we started off with the PPL, went on to the CPL. Okay. Uh, we did the instrument rating and the ATPL theory um, as part of this training. Yeah. And then what happened back then, back in the ye old times when I did this, um, was that we had to go and do our, our military uh, training. Oh, really? So when I had my CPL, IR, ATP uh, theory done, then I had a year where I did my military service as an airport firefighter. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a bit different, but yeah. it's still in kind of the same same area. I yeah. um, you normally you do that in the military. I chose to do it as kind of military slash uh, civil yeah. thing, which meant that I got my um, uh, my license as a um, as a smoke diver and as a, a firefighter as that's well. Pretty useful. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was useful because the thing is that after that, you could reapply to a second part of this government sponsor program, which was um, which included the uh, the multi-engine rating and the uh, uh, the MCC course. Oh, nice. So, but that, not everyone, not out of those thirty that that applied, came through that first course. Not everyone could get into the second course. So it was okay. even stricter criteria to get in. Um, 
but I got into that one as well. And while I was doing that, I was actually working at the airport where I was doing my training. I was working as a firefighter at the same time That's to, so to cool. <laughs> get some extra cash. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like that is a common story with every pilot. It's like, all right, I need extra cash. I need to fly more. How do I do this? And you yeah, chose to be yeah, an airport yeah. firefighter, which is awesome. A lot of people have line <laughs> service. You know, It's just funny. A lot of them stick within the aviation industry and the aviation world, which I usually highly recommend because – the more you immerse yourself in the aviation world, the better chance that you might meet someone that, hey, hey, I'm flying the Citation and I need someone to sit the right seat for this four-hour leg. You want to come with me? I'll pay you $200 an hour or I'll pay you in time or whatever. So you never know what can happen when you put yourself around aviation at all times. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's something that I always tell them as well. I mean, it's getting that first job, um, at least historically, has always been about who you know and mm-hmm. how much how much contracts that, or contacts that you've made in the industry. But also, you get a much deeper fundamental understanding for different parts of the work, work that you are going to be. I mean, I, me now when I'm working as a, as a pilot, I'm, of course, around... What we did, what I did was uh, as a firefighter, was also work on the ramp and help load and unload the um, the aircraft and, yeah. and work on that side. So that means that I have a, a much better understanding of that now since I've actually been doing it myself. So I, I I do the same. I highly recommend anyone if they want some extra cash to work around an airport if they can. Absolutely. I mean, you already love aviation, so why not make some money off it while you can? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. So what what how what was your training like? Did you struggle with training at all? Was it pretty easy for you, or what what was it like for you? Yeah, no, my uh, my training actually uh, it went well, quite well. Um, I think flying wise, it was uh, it, it was it was good. Um, I wasn't the best one in the class, and I wasn't in the bottom of the class either. Um, and I think, like everyone, um, the the theory was very tough, very very tough to get through. And uh, in in our case, we also had to, you know, aside from having to do all the ATP. The 14 subjects of the ATP. We also had to do our regular math exams and physics exams and mm-hmm. everything that came with normal schooling. So it, <laughs> it, was, it was very, very intense. I think I, I probably gobbled about three, four cups of coffee, as in Swedish <laughs> cups of coffee, every every day there. <laughs> That's funny. Is Swedish coffee stronger than American coffee? It is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, we we would consider American coffee more like tea. No. What? Are you kidding me? No, it's very strong. And the thing is, it's also, it's drunk out of basically tea mugs as we we drink. I think the Swedish population is drinking the most amount of coffee per capita in the world. Oh, it sounds like heaven to me. I love coffee. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Talk a little bit about the ATP theory. Now, that's something that Americans don't have to necessarily do. We might do it in a different way, but we don't have to take all those tests. So tell me a little bit about what that process is like and all the tests and courses you had to take for that. Yeah, and when I did it, um, the, the, the thing has kind of changed a little bit since since I did it. But when I did it, we we didn't have to do all of the exams at once. We could read a subject and then do the examination for the aviation authorities and then start the next exam. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, you read um, basically all of the subjects. And then I think you have two or three different occasions where you have to do all of the 14 exams. Oh, wow. Uh, which is yeah that that's that's very tough now um but the yeah the exams is the reason that we do and that, that I recommend anyone who's reading the well who's, who's studying for doing the cpl certificate the reason why you should be doing the frozen atp 
immediately is that you get to keep that. So when it's time for you to actually lift your your ATPL, mm-hmm. your airline um, transfer pilot license, you don't have to do the same exams again okay. because that's essentially what it is. The ATP is just a slightly higher um, level than okay. this CPL exams. So in order, to, and I mean, it would make sense to to get rid of that and do it on one occasion rather than doing just a CPL, then wait a few years to accrue the the, uh, the hours that you need, the fifteen hundred hours that you need, and then do the same fourteen exams again. Okay, so a frozen ATP is you are preparing for your CPL, and then mm. you take all the the theory classes and pass them. At that time, you have your ATP essentially, but it's frozen because you don't have the time to get to actually hold the ATP certificate. Is that what it is? Correct. Okay. Uh, you don't have the time, but you also need to do a skill a skill test okay. before you you can lift your ATPL later on. But it, it is a way to kind of limit the amount of of theory that you need to read to when you're actually doing it, rather okay. than later on in your career. Now, is that part of your training? So, from like an integrated model, or even in the model you did, is that included in all that training, or is that a completely separate thing that you have to do and pay for? No, that's included. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So when you when you buy typically if you if you get in to do your um, your integrated training in uh, in Europe, I think the way that they do it is they start off with the, th- the theory straight away. Okay. So the kind of first year is going to be a combination of theory and some flying, uh, but to get the theory out of the way, so once that's done, then you can concentrate on the flying uh, yeah. more and finish it all hopefully within two years. Then. Well, I feel like it's probably kind of a weed out too. So they kind of see how serious you are. They see your dedication and see if you can handle the workload that comes with it, which why they don't, uh, mm. you don't waste a ton of money flying the airplane and then figure out you can't pass any of the theory classes. So I feel like it's yeah. kind of their way of being like, hey, we're doing this up front. If you can do this, then you won't have an issue flying. This is going to be the hardest part of the whole training right here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, um, and, and it is. It, the, the problem I see a little bit with the way that it's done now and uh, the way that it's been kind of clumped together so that you have to do, say, three different exams on the same day mm-hmm. is that there is a tendency for people to focus a lot of their energy on specific subjects yeah. while it's, they, they focus a bit, little bit less on other subjects. And then they, they might combine the exams a little bit incorrectly. So they end up with a fail on a fairly simple subject right. because of lack of prioritization or not just understanding it and the problem is of course that the airlines they tend to use your scores and your first time passes on your atp exams as a divider on who gets the chance to get the first (laughs) job or not so this is something yeah this is something that people have to be very very careful with and I, i i always tell them that listen make sure that you group together your exams well uh and realize that a first time pass can be very important um later on Huh, that's interesting. So you're 17 years old and the airlines are looking at these tests that you took when you're 17 or 18 years old. So that's pretty tough. Yeah, it could be. I mean, yeah. they don't know how old you were when you did this. Exactly. Exam. They only gonna, they, you know how it is. An, yeah. an airline will sit there and they will have a, a, a pile of, let's say, a thousand applicants in front of them. They need to do the sorting in some way. And yeah. the easiest way for them to do it is like, right, just chuck all of the ones who didn't get a first time pass on all their exams. Exactly. All of a sudden you now have a hundred yeah. that you can choose from. That's very true. So yeah. when you so back to your training, when you are doing your private and then you said you went to commercial, then instrument, do you have to mm. so in the States we have to take te- a written test before we can take any check ride. Do you guys have to do that as well? Or is that kind of just your ATP theory? 
Yeah, that, that's the ATP theory. Okay. Um, we had to, let's see, I, just, I have to remember that this is 20 years ago now for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I do believe that you have to read, in order to lift the licenses, you had to do a theoretical exam first that we did for the PPL. Uh-huh. Um, and then we did the ATPL training. But this, like I said, this has changed since then. Yeah. Um, it was it was during the old rules. So I think now that's probably one of the reasons why they do these examinations before yeah. they start doing their, their flying as well. Okay. Now people people might correct me if I'm wrong here, but like I said, <laughs> it's 20 years ago for me. Exactly. <laughs> now you said you do private pilot, then you do your commercial. Is that kind of standard or is that forced upon you? Because in the States, I feel like we mainly go private pilot, instrument, then commercial some people do private then commercial then instrument it's just but if you're going on the career track it's usually private commercial instrument yeah and also um some of these integrated courses can skip the uh, the private completely Hmm. it can be it can be integrated because what you're doing is you're taking training to to become a commercial pilot right so instead of going kind of looping by this the uh, the private pilot license they just go straight for the cpl okay um, so that can be done, but that's providing that it's a, an approved integrated course. If you're gotcha. doing it the modular way, then yes, then you have to go through normal what people do is they take their PPL, their hour build for a while, uh-huh. then they start with their CPL, um, and they might or might not do the instrument rating at the same time. Okay. So um, th- there's many, many different ways of doing it, especially if you're doing it the modular way. Right. What? Um. How many hours? So it's like, in the States, you need 1,500 hours before you can get hired by any airline whatsoever, before you can hold an <laughs> ATP certificate, What? Yeah. yeah, which is completely different in Europe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, is, it, it is indeed completely different. So uh, when you graduate, no such... how many hours do you have and what do you need to have to get to an airline? Um, I think I graduated with like 189 hours okay. and that's what I started with in my airline. That's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's different. I mean, it these you guys didn't have these rules forever. This this is a fairly recent thing that came into the um, correct under the FAA rules as well. It was after that horrible crash in Buffalo. Um, in Buffalo yeah. yeah. So um, so we, I mean, we I have extensive experience now of training uh, people who come straight out of flight school mm-hmm. and straight into the right seat of a seven three seven. So I know that that works perfectly well, providing that they have the right attitude, providing that their training has been correct mm-hmm. and that they have the correct attitude towards the job that they're about to take up. It's There's no difference, and I can say this with absolute certainty, between a pilot who comes to me into the right seat, the first commercial job with uh, 2,000 hours of which he's been flying 1,800 hours Cessna somewhere, mm-hmm. And someone who comes in with 200 hours, they have exactly the same problems. The only thing that you might see a difference in is, is you know, the life experience that they might have accrued, right. and also a little bit better understanding of just general, you know, airspace right. knowledge and exactly. how to just their experiences that they've had. So yeah, knowledge exactly, comes with experience. It, it does, but there's not a lot that changes from how they handle the 737 or yeah. what kind of problems they have with to actually do the job as a first officer in a good way. Okay, that's very interesting because, I mean, I would definitely agree with you that it's not about how much hours you have. It's about quality of training and it's about the program that you're in. So mm-hmm. I have no problem with someone because I've 
before when I was doing my training, you could still get hired by a regional airline with 250 hours. So yeah. I still knew some people that got hired with 250 hours and they did just fine. And absolutely, the only difference I would say between now, what, so for me personally, what I learned from 200 hour, 250 hours to 1500 hours was just experience of flying, how to navigate mm. around weather, how the do's and don'ts, you know, kind of how to load and unload an airplane, how to, what life's like on the road, which necessarily isn't practical to training itself, but it definitely does help you with the experience and knowledge that you get of some of flying that maybe you don't get, you know, if that makes sense. Like, well, absolutely. The, the thing is that kind of knowledge, the, the kind of ni- knowledge of life, you get that doing pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, um, Some of the things that we pick up from people who've been doing a lot of flying of smaller aircraft outside of airline operation is that they'll also pick up habits during those maybe, say, 2,000 hours exactly. where they're flying by themselves, which we then have to de-learn them. That could be <laughs> attitudes, for example, yeah. attitudes about weather. Um, things like that that we say, well, no, 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 you, you, under no circumstances can you do that now, you know, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. So there's, there's pros and cons to it. Um, but what I can say is I don't think necessarily that the, uh, these, uh, 1500 hours FAA rules, um, is achieving what they want to achieve. No, I, I, I don't would agree uh, with you. I would agree. Yeah, I, I know that there's a lot of, of, of industry voices out there who are saying differently, say that, yeah, 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 we definitely people coming from the unions, for example, have a tendency to talk about that, about the, the need to have 1,500 hours. Um, from a safety point of view, um, with the experience that we've had in my airline over the last 20 years when we've been taking in low-hour cadets, mm-hmm. uh, it's not it's not there. There's no statistical evidence that, that, would, that would support the fact that you're more safe at 1,500 hours taking yeah. up an airline job than at 250 hours no i mean i would i would definitely agree with you and then there like we said there are deficiencies in what that 250 hour pilot has and that is something mm-hmm. that you have a blank canvas to change and to train them the way you want them to be trained and like you said someone coming in from a previous airline or a previous flying experience that has bad tendencies that's going to take mm-hmm. you extra time to break those tendencies and then they're teaching the way you want to be taught but at the same time you usually whenever something goes wrong, you're going to remember what you were taught first. So their first instinct still might be to do it the way you don't want them to do it. So when you have someone coming in with less than a low amount of time and you can fully train them to everything that you want them to learn, that actually might turn out to be better in the long run than picking up someone that's already been hired by an airline or someone that's been, that has more hours that has these preconceived notions of how they do things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the most one of the most uh, gratifying gratifying experiences that I've ever had is working as a synthetic flight instructor. When I was a first officer, um, after a few years, I managed to get in as a as an instructor in the okay. simulator, uh, and um, uh, I was working a lot with doing these initial type ratings for um, yeah for new entry pilots. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly like you say. It's like having a a blank canvas that you can write on. They will they will listen and they will immediately adapt to to what you and the training organization is telling them. Exactly. Like you you tell them no, you should be doing this that way instead. Done. They just change it. Yeah. So it it's that is that is very I think for an airline, um, my airline for example has has very specific standard operating procedures. They're very they they cover almost everything that we do in the cockpit all the time Mm -hmm. and they're there for the specific purpose of allowing 
people with very low experience to fly with people with very high experience okay. and for them to be able to coexist and work in an efficient way. Um, in order for that to work, you have to have very specific SOPs because right. these, these these new pilots, they, that's the only lifeline they have to hold on to when they start to go outside of their comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it also means that you do have to teach them a lot. Like in order to, 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 to pass a... Um, uh, a license proficiency check or an operational proficiency check for us, you need to know these things. Both mm-hmm. the, the, the senior captains that might come in from other airlines need to know exactly what these SOPs are and the cadets that's coming in with 250, they also need to know this. And the people who tend to struggle with this are the ones that are coming from other airlines because the, 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 the operating procedures are so big, so yeah. much. There's so much of them. You know? Exactly. And it's like we said earlier, they might, for some reason, they might like the way the other airline did it better. So they're going to be like, oh, I'm not going to do that. They're still going to stick with what they think is better. But it's like, no, yeah. the other guy in the other seat is relying on you to do this a certain way. And when you stray that you don't understand the, the safety hazard that that can create. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the situational awareness of the cadet, the guy yeah. who's sitting there with, or, or girl who's sitting there with, with 300 hours when the captain all of a sudden starts doing something in a completely different way, mm-hmm. they would lose, not only they will lose their, uh, you know, understanding of what he or she is doing, but they will lose all the other situational awareness as well, because all the capacity will go towards trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> For the next hour. So, yes, <laughs> yeah, they're gone. It's absolutely, it's yeah. absolutely crucial that, that everyone plays and, and sings by the same hymn sheet. You know, it's very, very important. For sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. And let's go back to kind of, so you're, you finished up your training a little, or let's go back to that. You finished up your training. You are now applying for an airline job. I talked with yeah. Maria, Pilot Maria, earlier, and we kind of talked about this. It's different than the States. It's where you kind of apply to all of them, and they chew, like, you know, I kind of go on. Like, I don't know enough to talk about it, but I know it's different <laughs> than what we have. So give me your best rendition of it. All right. So uh, the way that it worked, now you have to understand that when I finished my training, that was in the spring of 2003. Okay. All right. So 9-11 uh-huh. just happened, um, basically, within the space of time of about a year. Um, it was nothing out there. Yeah. Okay. There, there was no jobs. It was the worst recession in the industry that we've ever seen. Yeah. Um, at that point, you apply for absolutely everything uh, there is anything okay. from from flying, um, you know, postal flights in the middle of the night to be, you know, paid next to nothing. <laughs> uh, taxi flying Cessna one, um, sorry, Cessna three forty jobs. Okay, anything that you that that there might be a slight possibility that you can get into, you apply to, uh, and then you wait and you see if someone returns your call if you get called for anything. Uh, now, in my case, I was once again very, very lucky. Um, I, like I said before, there has been some changes in the way that the licensing and the course was mm-hmm. done. That change happened when, while I was doing my uh, uh, my military service. Okay. So when I did my training, included in the course was the CPL instrument rating ATPL theory. Okay. The only thing that was missing from my, from my, uh, for me being able to apply for a job was my multi-engine and my MCC course. Okay. Now, during the time that I did my military training, they uh, they changed that so that the course did not include the instrument rating and did not include the ATPL theory. Okay. Basically, they lightened up the course. 
So that meant that when I went to the secondary course, the part that was supposed to include only the multi-engine and the MCC, they have now included instrument rating and ATPL theory hmm. in that course. But I had already done that. Okay. So through uh, various discussions with the school, we managed to convince them that the, those of us who had already done this, we could start our multi-engine training earlier. So while my classmates were doing their ATPL theory, I was now doing the multi-engine training and okay. we managed to get into an earlier MCC course. And then just out of a, you know, out of pure luck, when I just finished my MCC course, a friend of mine had gone for an interview with an airline uh, in Amsterdam and they, that airline needed more pilots. So they asked him, do you know anyone who's <laughs> just finished by any chance? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, so he, he mentioned me and, uh, and two of my friends, um, which meant that me, I was the only one who could actually go for that interview because all of my classmates, they, they were already, they were still training. They didn't have their multi-engine oh, done. No. Yeah. And included in this, in, in this um, package, included in this secondary course was also going over to, to um, uh, San Diego and do some line flying, some, you know, route training over there. Mm -hmm. So what ha ended up happening was that I went for this interview. I passed the interview. I got the job. Yeah. Um, well, my yeah, first attempt, my first interview, and I managed to get the job. <laughs> While so that meant that I started my type rating and actually started flying on the seven three seven while my classmate was still doing their course. Oh my god! In um, <laughs> yeah, in San Diego. So on my first annual leave from my airline, I went over to visit my my classmates in San Diego. I bet they hated you. <laughs> like you. I bet they hated me. Looking back at me, looking back at it now, I bet they they hated my. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. It was it, it was an incredible stroke of luck. Yeah, I mean that's what this industry is all about, though. It's about the timing you have when you come in. It's about luck, just dumb luck, like you said. Like there's there's very little skill in you getting a job over someone else, other than being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people. Yes, but having said that, also you tend to the more you work, the luckier you tend to become. That's, oh, for sure, you create your own luck without a doubt. Yeah, I, so I, I, fir you, I you firmly do, believe cause, that. Cause I, all of that, all of the fact that I uh, that I managed to that I managed to get that was was because we had fought for being able to do this training out of sequence with the rest of the course. Yeah, you know. So if it wouldn't have been for that, and it was a lot of work trying to convince the school because they had a, a set curriculum. Mm -hmm. like, this is the way that this should be done. Trying to convince them that we could do it earlier in order to get finished earlier. That was that was it took me a good six months to do that, <laughs> but it ended up being the decisive factor, the thing that changed so that I could get this job while no one else could. Yeah, and I'm guessing European airlines are the same as in the states, where you need to get into the airline as soon as possible because you work based off seniority. Is that correct? Um, in most um, in most of the of the flag carriers, you know the older type airlines, it is mm -hmm. like that. In my airline now, there's no seniority Whoa, um, at that's all. That's crazy. Yeah, so that's the how do they determine who becomes a captain then? On skill. Skill. Um, yeah. Okay. Basically, how do they determine skill? <laughs> like, well, they base it on your training history. Okay. Um, but the way that I mean. The reason that you need seniority in a lot of the older airlines is also because there is no, there's a, you know, there's no big need for command upgrades. Mm -hmm. As people retire or um, move on to other airlines, there will be openings where you can become a captain. Mm -hmm. So very, very few. Now I am working for an airline that is expanding rapidly and constantly, right. which means that there is a constant need of new 
new captains. So at the moment, what happens is that you, when you have your hours to become a captain, which is 3,000 hours, okay. um, then you will be evaluated uh, based on your attitude, based on your training history, and also based on, well, my opinion, I am a, I'm a typewriting examiner now. <laughs> uh, based on that, you, um, you then get the chance to become a captain. Right. Okay. And if you, if you play your cards right, you know your stuff, you get through the course, well, then you'll get your command. Okay. And that can happen in as little time as three, three and a half years if, you, awesome. if you're really quick. That's, that's pretty cool. That, I mean, it, it's, seniority is definitely more of an older airline thing, I would agree. But it's like you said, it's needed in how they're shaped and how they've been running just because there's not <clears throat> as many captain bids available. Now, I know American Airlines specifically and United and Delta, they're starting to really feel the pilot shortage. And there's people upgrading the captain of a 320 or 319 and as little as three years. So there's <clears throat> definitely a lot of growth in those airlines too, but it's still very much seniority based. Oh, absolutely. But the the seniority is a good tool to have for the airlines, and it's also a very fair tool for the employees. You can see exactly why the airline has has done a specific choice. Exactly. But it's only only really interesting if if there is a lack of these jobs, so if there is a high competition for the jobs. Exactly. Um, if, If you end up with everyone having the chance to become a pilot, sorry, become a captain, if you uh, if you play your cards right then seniority plays less of a less of a role in that perspective but then you have other things like annual leave um basing Mm -hmm. and things like that 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 would require something similar to a seniority system definitely awesome that is definitely interesting just to hear the two differences and how they work but they they both work it shows that there's two systems out there and they both can work so there we go. oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's always interesting because one of the things that i learned you know when i really enjoy with running my youtube channel is that i get these kind of inputs i get inputs from all over the world um and you do realize that there's a lot of working systems out there but they are completely different from yeah. each other one thing I wanted to talk about, I don't know if your airline does this, but I am very confused at this. But on Instagram, I see pilots wearing two stripes on their epaulets. What yeah. is it? What is that? I don't understand at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, two stripes is indicative of lower experience. Okay. So, so when you when you enter into the right seat, you enter in as a as a junior first officer or as a first officer. We, okay. In my airline, we, they're only referred to as first officers, but um, the first thing you you get is two uh, two stripes on your okay. epaulets. But you have a typewriting and, in that airplane though. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This, you you have the same job in most of the cases, the same salary as well okay. as the as the guy that <laughs> have more more stripes on the um, um, on the shoulder. Okay. But as you then gain experience, when you pass about fifteen hundred hours uh, on type or one year in the airline, you get your third stripe. Gotcha. Which so. is so it's just an indication that all right. For example, the, the, the most junior first officers that we have, they have uh, restrictions based on them. So they can't land in you know, more than 15 knots crosswind yeah. or they can't take off with less than 1,000 meters RVR. Exactly, yeah. So, we have those so too. It's, it's, yeah, so it's an indication for the captain as well to kind of you know check, okay. right? So how much experience do you actually have? Right, I have this much. Okay. 
That's interesting because I, I, in my mind, for some reason, I just thought like, all right, they got hired by an airline with low time, so now they're a safety pilot and they sit in the jump seat and observe. And that's a, that's what I thought in my mind. And they kind of mm. get a feel and a flow for how everything works. And then as soon as they get up to the three stripes, then they get their type rating and then they're going to go. But it's interesting to know that they are type rated. They do fly. And when they have two stripes, is it always a two-pilot crew or do they sometimes throw a, a third like an actual first officer in there and let them fly? Well, first of all, they are actual first officers. Right, um, you're right. We 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 imply <laughs> we we we, um, we employ them as first officers. Yeah. But what does happen is that um, during the the first part, since they're coming out with so low experience, mm-hmm. um, the line training in order to be line checked and fly with normal captains is quite long. It it stretches up to around eighty or ninety sectors normally. Okay, wow, uh, which can take a good three months yeah, to do. For sure. Uh, during that time, in in, in the beginning, uh, they will fly with uh, with the safety pilot. Okay. So when you come out and you've done your type rating and you've done your base training, which is the six takeoffs and landings that you need to make in order to to lift your type rating, then you will come out and you will start flying the line with passengers. Okay. Uh, but the first, I would say, about on general around twenty sectors or so, will be flown with a more senior first officer on the jump seat in case something would happen to the captain. Gotcha. All right. So it's or if the weather becomes so poor that the captain deems it's necessary to have a more experienced crew member. But the the safety pilot is there in case there would be a piloting capacitation on the captain's side. Gotcha. And the the uh, the new first officer wouldn't have the experience to handle it. Then you can have a, a more experienced guy jumping in and helping out. Good to know. Uh, and when the line training captain, which I work as line training captain as well, when we decide that, okay, now this, this first officer has demonstrated um, his or her ability to, to land well and to take proper decisions based on good knowledge, well, then we will release the safety pilot and we fly in a normal two, two-man okay. copy crew. Gotcha. All right. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I could just never wrap my mind around what the two bars meant. And I was like, so I see it on Instagram all the time. I'm like, what is this? I don't understand. <laughs> so that's really I good think to know. As well, I think it's well that it's, it's very company specific. Okay. Um, you have some companies that, that gives out these two bars. You have some companies that have like one and a half bar or two and a half bar. There's, <laughs> there's all kinds of different combinations. But Interesting. one once you fly uh once you fly in an airline here in europe you are type rated and you are sitting in the right seat because what's funny is a lot of airlines in the states they give their flight attendants two bars so yeah it's just like are you do you do are you a flight attendant (laughs) like it's not like me like throwing any shade at them or making them feel bad i just legit had no idea i was like i'm really are you a flight attendant pilot like what's going on (laughs) so i I think there should probably be some kind of standardization in this in this uh, field (laughs) (laughs) right because i I, I can i can see how after you've done your your grueling flight training and you paid all that money and you've gotten your type rating and you've gotten your line training and you come out and someone asks you if, you're, if, if you work in the cabin <laughs> how, how that could probably hurt exactly like yeah hey, take a diet coke please <laughs> it's like what <laughs> i'm flying the plane today it's like oh <laughs> that's funny so one more thing i want to talk a little more about um kind of your how your career progressed so first officer to captain or first officer to training in the simulator to captain and then how you became a Mm. check airman what was the timeline for that how long does that take and is that a route that a lot of people take or is it a very select few that get that um it's in my in my way so in my in in 
the way that my story progressed was I started when I was 20, mm-hmm. um, flying then as a first officer. And, and like I was saying, since the airline is rapidly expanding, um, potentially I could have gone for a command upgrade uh, at 23. Dang. Yeah, exactly. But the thing <laughs> is that the way the way that I feel is is first of all, when I'd done about two and a half years um, in the right seat on my first base, which was London Stansted at the mm-hmm. time, um, I felt that I I needed a change, and I also felt that I needed to grow a little bit. And this opportunity to to apply for a brand new scheme, which didn't exist basically before, that SFI scheme that I was talking about, came up, and I applied for that. Um, now, what that did when I actually got the job was that I, I went into the simulator, which meant that I wasn't flying as much. So it mm-hmm. actually delayed my, my potential command upgrade since I couldn't accrue the hours gotcha. as quickly. Yeah. But what it also did, uh, and this is something that for those of you out there listening that's thinking about this, was that it prepared me for command in so much in a so much better and more profound way than just sitting in the right seat waiting for the hours would have ever done because as a as a type rating instructor which you effectively are when you've done the sfi course it's the same course as for a tri and an sfi uh, you need to sit there and you need to deal with people both during recurrent training so you can deal with grumpy captains who are not doing their job <laughs> what do you mean well. grumpy captains there's no such uh, thing <laughs> of course there's no such thing yeah. uh, no but you, you get to do you, you get to do recurrent training with actual line crews so deal with any deficiencies that might be there, the, the CRM part of having to debrief someone with a higher rank than yourself and much more experience um, and, and give some tough you know, give some tough debriefings to people. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do that in a way that works in a way that they come out feeling better about themselves. You come out feeling happy that you have fixed a, um, a deficiency something that needs to be trained but you also have you know what I was talking about before, which is you're, you're training new people, new first officers that's yeah. joining the company, and new type ratings. So, in order to to teach a new person and someone who hasn't flown the aircraft before, in order to teach them the type rating, you need to know things about the airplane at a completely different level. Without a doubt, it's it's one thing knowing how to fly a procedure. It's a completely different thing to explain why the procedure is flown like that. For sure, and. This is what the SFI course was. That that took me. I mean, that was the hardest course that I have ever done. That was that was. It was the the, the what they were expecting from me. The knowledge that they expected from <laughs> me was much much higher than I thought it would be. Yeah. So I I was working my behind off to get that done. You know. Yeah, no, I know. I um, know. And then I can't so, imagine having to deal with a captain. It's like, why is this first officer trying to tell me what to do? It's like I have twenty years on this guy. It's like he doesn't know as much as I do. No, and I didn't, and yeah. I I, did, I made that very clear to them that you know when we had a debriefing that I of course with a you know a 23 year old guy with two and a half years in the air in the aircraft does not have the experience that this senior captain has, mm-hmm. but I know what I'm talking about on this occasion. <laughs> you know this specific ex- exercise I know very well, and yeah. I've been briefed very well by the training department. This is the way it's supposed to be done, and this is why. It's supposed to be done that way, and if you can do that, if you can debrief them in a way that they feel like, yeah, actually, does does make it does make sense, yeah. and you can see that on them when they respect you for what you're telling them because it's true, or when they don't respect you because they think that you're a little brat. <laughs> uh, that that 
basically that that allowed me to grow in my role um, in a completely different way than I would have done if I wouldn't have taken the chance. So it delayed my command, but maybe a year and a half yeah. because I only flew maybe 200 hours a year, something um, as an SFI, where in the normal circumstances, I would have flown about 900 hours a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it came time for my command upgrade, it was it was a breeze. I, as in the, the theoretical part, I knew by heart because yeah. that's what I've been teaching for two and a half years. The only thing that was problematic and it's the same for everyone is the, the management. As in actually sitting in the left, understanding that you are now the one where the box stops. You know right. that's 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 where it stops. That took uh, a bit of time as well. But I had been taught to do that in my role as an instructor to a certain extent already. Yeah. So the command upgrade was much easier. This is some. This is why I always recommend people who are interested in teaching other people to go through the SFI route if they have the chance because it's great. Oh, for sure. And just like you said, it's going to prepare you, better prepare you for you to be in command of an aircraft. So yeah, then, and it will give you a much deeper understanding of the aircraft, yeah. much de- deeper understanding of everything that you do around it. So so that was great. But it took me so um, when I was 25, um, I got my my command. That's crazy. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome and uh, it's crazy. And but probably that, terrifying that was, too for you. <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> yeah, but but then again, you know, you, you don't have the wits when you're 25 to be yeah, terrified. That's true. That's the problem. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, that that's kind of the thing when I'm when I'm looking at potential command upgrades now, and you you have an interview with them, and you ask them like, so how do you feel? Do you feel prepared to become a captain? Mm-hmm. The ones who answer is like, yeah, I'm more than ready. Those are the ones that you have to be a little bit careful with. <laughs> the ones who say, "Well, actually, there's a lot of, of, of you know, I, I have to study, I have to make sure that I do this right because the responsibility is really high. I'm not sure if I'm ready." That's when you know that they have understood what it's about. Yeah, that's a good tidbit of knowledge there. Yeah, so don't necessarily come in all confident. Just be like, "Hey, this is real. Like, this is a lot of pressure. This is a lot to do." Like. I'm, yeah, because you don't have any. I mean, you you don't have any idea if you're coming yeah. in as a twenty twenty five year old who's never had command of an aircraft before, not of this size anyway. Right? How can you say that you're that you know all about this? You know, right. I'm re- I'm more than ready. You can't. It just shows that you're not mature. Right. No, it does. You're right, and that's a that's a big thing in a cockpit is that you want to make sure that you are mature enough to handle the things that may pop up. Yeah, because yeah. I never know. I mean, I've been flying this aircraft for eighteen years now. But I would still be surprised. There would still be things popping up at me that I've never seen before and that I don't know how to handle. But it's how you, you <laughs> utilize the team and how you can kind of gather yeah. everyone around to, to to get that job done. That's exactly. that's what's going to decide whether or not you're a good captain. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, CRM and managing a crew. Because sometimes maybe there's something going on and the first officer might know better. And you'd be like, hey, man, like I'm as a captain, I am t- letting you take control of the airplane because you have seen this before. Or you have done that before, but that's on the captain to make that that choice and that decision. Oh, absolutely! You you get uh, there's so many there's so many situations where the first officer is correcting me mm-hmm. on something where I've made a mistake or I've misunderstood something where I'm really grateful that that they felt that they were empowered enough to speak up. Yeah, you sure. know that's a, that that that's something that I feel strongly about and something that we in my airline is pushing very strongly for as well yeah. for the first officers to always feel empowered to um to speak up if it's needed. Definitely, because you don't know the experience that that first officer has. Like you share a cockpit. Well, I don't know about your airline, but in the airlines, you share a cockpit with someone for a couple of days and you probably don't see him again for two years. So you don't know what their experiences have been 
that you don't know no. what they've gone through, their knowledge, their flying experience, and all that. So yeah, that's definitely true. Absolutely. But anyway, anyway, um, so that was so I was 25 and I had my uh, my command, mm-hmm. um, and then I worked for about a year and a half um, as a as a captain while I was still actually teaching typewriting because I still had my my TRI, my SFI TRI yeah. rating. Um, and then I became a line trainer because I had that previous training experience already. Um, I worked as a line trainer, which is teaching um, yeah, the pilots that come off the type rating into the um, into line before they're allowed to fly with normal captains, they fly with line training captains. Yeah. Um, and only after that uh, could I apply when there was a position coming up um, for a type rating examiner. Um, I applied for that once, didn't get it, uh, <laughs> and then a second time, and I got it. That's cool. Is there anything else that you can apply for? Have you pretty much maxed out? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much, pretty much. Well, I mean, there's always there's always management roles yeah. and things that you can apply for to get higher up in the organization. But when, as flying is concerned, yeah. there's there's not much more that I that I feel that I want to um, that I want to achieve exactly. at this point. Exactly. And you're a pilot; you don't necessarily want to sit behind a desk all day. So, <laughs> ah, exactly. I wanted to get into talking about mentor pilot, talking about why you started it, the reason behind it. I know we kind of talked about it before before we started recording, but kind of just I don't know if you've kind of talked about why you are doing what you're doing and what the reason behind your channel is. Yeah, um, it's just fascinating. Um, I what what ended up happening was that I I got a lot of questions from relatives, from friends, and also when I was jump seating as a as a passive crew on the um, on the aircraft, a lot of people asking about pilot related stuff, aviation related stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized quite quickly that there wasn't really any any positive and constructive outlet available. Mm-hmm. There was a few YouTube channels about when I started, they were, but they they were pretty. Um, they were pretty specialized to, uh, you know, you had to kind of be a pilot in order to understand what they were talking about. Yeah. Uh, and if you wanted to go in to look at, for example, different pilot forums, well, then what you ended up happening was that you found a forum where everyone said that being a pilot sucks. Uh, you know, this, <laughs> they this focus is not on the worst part. Yeah. Yeah, because what people did was they the only reason that you would go into the internet and talk about your job as a pilot would be to vent your frustration <laughs> about something. Exactly. It wasn't. It wasn't to, to to share your knowledge or or anything like that. It was just that. Okay, I work with this airline. This sucks. I don't want to be. I want. I don't want to be in in crash pads. I don't want to do yeah. this and this and that. Right. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to create a forum where people could get information from someone who actually liked his job about what I thought. This is only my own experience and my own um, take on things. But at least I could give that in a way that people felt was a positive mm-hmm. way. Uh, and I also, as the, the project kind of progressed uh, and I went into making the Metro Aviation app, for example, I wanted to give them a chance to be able to ask their questions in a supportive and positive environment. So someone who was 13 years old, who'd never been in a cockpit, didn't know anything about it, could go in and ask a question to me, um, a training captain from 18 years, and I could give them an answer in a way that that showed that I respected them. Yeah, for sure. And I felt that, that that's what I wanted to try to contribute with. I wanted to to be able to give people that possibility because you know everyone is everyone is children in the beginning. Everyone knows nothing when they start. <laughs> yeah. So if your first if your first encounter with a pilot is that you ask a question about how come the aircraft doesn't fall down 
you know <laughs> if your answer if your if your answer back is like well do you know you kid you shouldn't be here because you know so little you might not pursue you know you might not yeah. continue to last from you because you feel so shut down yeah. that you don't want to continue even though that was an actual honest question right while the 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 answer to that question should be well there are different theories you you know we we have newton's third law of physics mm-hmm. which you know shows that every action has an equal and opposite reaction and then you have Bernoulli's theorem, which talks about the the pressure difference on the top and the bottom of the wing, and you, you can actually get a answer to this is why an aircraft doesn't fall out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, very technical, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that's how it would be. Like someone would ask us, I'm not going to say a stupid question, but they would think that they would interpret that as a stupid question and immediately shut them down. And then when you yeah. shut them down, that's going to be like, oh, well, I clearly don't have the capacity or the brain knowledge to understand this. I'm going to go focus on something else now. Yeah. And I, so I, I wanted, I wanted with, with the mentor pilot project, the YouTube channel, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the mentor aviation app, the Instagram account, I wanted to share both the fact that I love my job, the fact that I, I am, I'm very deeply interested in what I'm doing and yeah. that there are many, many different interesting aspects to this job. I wanted to share that. And I also wanted to give people an avenue where they could ask these questions, where they could get into contact with pilots like you and pilots like me, mm-hmm. and we could share what we knew about it. But also, something that I felt very, very strongly about in the beginning was to give a more accurate picture of what a pilot actually did. There you go. Um, because I felt that there was a lot of people that was getting <laughs> into the industry with the thinking of, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be a pilot, and what's going to happen is that I'm going to get a big, shiny jet, I'm going to fly off oh, yeah. to, you know, to Barbados, I'm going to stay there for five days with like 18 <laughs> uh, flight attendants behind me, and then I'm going to haul back home and I'm going to be off for a month. Yeah, and I'll come like, home whenever I want to come home, when I'm ready to come home. <laughs> exactly, and I'm only, going to, I'm only going to fly with people that I like, so yeah. I'm going to be my friends in the flight deck. And I felt that, you know, there has to be, people are going to make life altering decisions especially especially huge economical decisions mm-hmm. which it is to, to, to start flight training today at least they should know what to you know what to expect yeah for sure maybe maybe when you when you start off you might want to get into this long-haul airline which keep you away for you know for a week for two weeks at end but maybe when you are 25 or 27 or whatever and you find the, the, the girl or the boy of your dreams you might want to stay home yeah. more. And then all of a sudden that, 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 that like fantastic airline, which had you sitting in Barbados for a week is going to turn into something completely different where you're sitting desperately trying to FaceTime your kids yeah. while, you know, while, while you should, you would like to be home with them instead. And all of this is something that you need to know when you get into this industry, both the pros and the cons, but in a way that is, you know, positive and constructive. For sure. I, I 100% agree with that. And I, I, I saw that as well. I saw that on Instagram when I first started. So everyone just showed the good part of aviation. And I think the community is doing a little bit of a better job of being more real. But before mm-hmm. it was just, uh, here's my shiny jet. My life's perfect. I'm flying one yeah. leg and then I sleep. I'm <laughs> off for 16 days. And it's just like, that's, sometimes being a pilot sucks. It's like there yeah. are days where it's not enjoyable. It is a job. Uh, I mean, you just have to... There's most of the time it doesn't feel like a job, but there are just some days when the weather's terrible. You've been flying a lot and you don't want to do it. So 
No, when you uh, get up on your f- on your fifth day of consecutive earlies, like when you when you when you have that cup of coffee at four o'clock in the morning and it's <laughs> pissing with rain outside, and you're going out and you know that you're going to do like four sectors, twelve hours in the cockpit with someone who you might not get along perfectly exactly. with. Exactly. Yeah. It this this is what happens in reality. You're sitting inside of a, of, of an office that's the size of a closet. Uh, <laughs> you better make sure that you like what you're doing. Yeah. And, and but this is the problem that it the way that I found the internet to be, it was very black and white. You either have the Instagram accounts with the shiny beaches and the sports cars and all of that, yeah. or you had the people on on the message boards that were just crying about how horrible their life had become. Yeah. But there was no balanced view on like, so this is what you can actually expect. Now, I should say the disclaimer here is that, first of all, I have been incredibly lucky throughout <laughs> my entire career. I have felt, I've jumped from one opportunity to the other, and I've been very grateful for that. So part of this is me wanting to try to give back a little bit. Um, and I also realized that the job that I have in the airline that I fly for, where I get home every night, you know, I sleep in my own bed every night, I'm oh, never crazy. out. Uh, and I have a fixed roster, and all of that is not, it's not, you know, it's only me who have this, and the people working for my airlines have a similar experience. So I can't speak for everyone else. I can only speak for myself, but I can give that this is my picture. You know, yeah, this, this exactly. is how I live it. That's awesome, and that's really cool. I love the perspective because it's definitely needed. Because, like you said, there are there's no medium. There is I love my job or I hate my job. So you're there. Yeah. Let's all cry misery on the message boards, or let me show you. It's and it's probably the same person that's posting the picture of their private jet and all the the good life. They're on the internet complaining about how much they hate their life as soon as yeah. There's a, there's a Mr. Mr. Cool, sexy yeah. pilot dude to 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 zero is the same as like sad miserable dude. Exactly on, on the other. Yeah, it, and it, it's, that's the. I mean, that's the problem with internet. Yeah, it's it, it becomes a caricature of yep. itself a little For bit. Sure. Well, hey, I want to go into a quick rapid-fire section where I kind of ask you the first question that comes to my mind. They're all going to, Most of them will be aviation-related, and then you just say mm. the first thing that comes to your mind. Sure. All right. What is your favorite airport you've ever flown to? Malta. What is your favorite approach? Ui, that's harder. Uh, <laughs> ooh, Perugia, okay. I think. I have no idea what that is, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's very tricky. Okay. What is your favorite airline to fly on? And I don't know if you can actually answer that, but if you can't, go for it. <laughs> like as so a passenger. As a, as yeah. a passenger. Um, I think Thai Airways is very high up there. Okay. There you go. If you had to fly, or if you, so say you are long day, 12 hours, you've done a lot of flights, you need to get some food in an airport, what's your go-to food? Um, so that, that tends to be the healthy yeah. section. If I have a choice, yeah, something I love. There, there's some, there's some stores in, or some, some food like quick foods mm-hmm. in, um, in the UK, believe it or not, um, that have opened like a healthy, either sushi or, okay. or, or, or like um, sustainable eco- ecological rice together with some chicken and stuff. There's right. really, really good health, healthy choices. And good choice. I only, I only go for that if I. I'm sure your wife can. appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. What is your least favorite airport to fly into? Oh, okay. The first thing that comes into mind is London Stansted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there a reason why? Yeah, because it's, it's, there's been tons of problems okay. uh, operational-wise. As in, very rarely do we get 
out on time oh, ever. Yep, that would be bad. Yeah. If you were to buy an airplane, what airplane would you want to buy? Ooh. <laughs> do I have unlimited source of money? Um, so yeah, let me narrow that down. So let's do a two-part question. If you have to buy like a, a training aircraft, so a 172, a Piper, or a Diamond, what aircraft would you buy? Diamond. Okay. And if you had all the money in the world to purchase an airplane, what airplane would you purchase? I would um, I would purchase and restore a Concorde to flying. Oh, there you go. That'd be cool. <laughs> no but that, now we're talking. Yeah. Now, now we're talking some serious money yeah, here. But I had unlimited, so that's what I would do. You better hope Mentor Pilot takes off, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right, what is your dream airplane to fly? So, say the airline you fly for now could purchase any airplane, and you would want to fly it. Other than the Concorde, what would it be? Yeah, so um, at the moment, um, that would be either the uh, the uh, Boeing 787, the Dreamliner, or the uh, Airbus 350. Okay, those are two good choices. The seven, I've flown on the 787 before. We went, My wife and I went to China, and it was mm. the most incredible experience. I love that plane. I was geeking out the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I just love the the combination of uh, you know new aerodynamics, yeah. um, all of all of the avionics that's in the the cockpit, all of the the ergonomics that's in yep. the cockpit as well. I love that you're you know to be on the forefront of technology. Yeah, for sure, it's definitely really cool. All right, last one is going to be what is one thing you always have on you when you're flying? So it could be like sunglasses, like you have to have a watch, you have to have an iPad. What would it be? when i'm i mean obviously it's going to be my headset yeah. my uh, my pro flight headset yeah hashtag bose sponsorship if you want to sponsor this episode yeah <laughs> bose a20 <laughs> the best headset in the game <laughs> no funny. but i mean that it's true though because yeah. if you like a headset i i forgot my uh my active noise canceling at home oh, one no. day and i had to use like the the standard telex one that is in the that's in yeah. all of the aircraft and it was a painful experience it almost when you makes use, you a dangerous pilot. <laughs> it makes you sick. Like you, you get a headache. Uh, it, it's crazy because the 737 is very noisy. Yeah. Um, I haven't flown on the Airbus family. They're supposed to be uh, be more quiet. But but the, the 737, especially at low altitude, high speed, is very noisy. Thanks. So you have to turn the volume right up in order to hear both the, the co-pilot through the intercom but also yeah. the ATC. So you end up having this thing screaming in your ears. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. Proper headset. Proper anyone out there. I like that. Doesn't have to be a really expensive one, but yeah. a good headset. Yeah. Invest in yourself. Invest in your ears. <laughs> you don't want to get yeah. deaf when you're 40. True. Yeah. All right. That was it for the rapid fire section. I only have one more question for you, and then we can go ahead and debrief a little bit afterwards. But sure. the last question is: You have someone that is coming up saying, "Hey, I want to be a pilot. Um, what are three tips that you would give them? Just three specific tips on how to to position themselves for the best career possible." Okay. Um, first of all, is going to be examine what your economical situation is. Okay. okay. So you need to, you need to know what kind of money you have to spend. The right second thing, <laughs> the, the second thing is start researching. Um, now, what I mean by researching is really research, as in look at. Do you want to do it the modular way, which is cheaper? Uh, takes longer time and puts more pressure on you personally to have good study techniques and so on. Do you want to go the integrated way, which is more tailor-made, but it's much more expensive normally and quicker? Because those those two things, those two parts is going to be really important that you determine early. So how much money do you have? 
that will also, also to a certain extent determine whether or not you're going to go modular or integrated. Mm -hmm. And then when you start doing research, I mean, check the schools out, go to them, go to open day, speak to um, to previous students, speak to um, students who are there at the moment, check what kind of um, um, rate, employment rates other exactly. students that have left the school have. Uh, what kind of deals or, or uh, corporations do they have with airlines, mm -hmm. if any? So do proper research. And that doesn't mean that because a lot of people, I think, are stuck mentally in thinking about flight schools in their own country. Yeah. Uh, in Europe now, since we are all under EASA rules, it means that the entire Euroblock, you have hundreds, if not thousands of flight schools out there. Uh, you might be able to get equivalent quality training for a fraction of the price if you just move a couple of hundred kilometers towards yeah. the south or Crazy. west yeah and but you can only know that if you've done your research properly so once you've done all this then you will know then you won't have to ask me any more questions <laughs> but still asking questions because he likes to answer your questions <laughs> Absolutely. No, but it, it's crucial. All of these steps are really important. And I know that a lot of people come to me and obviously the biggest hurdle to get into this profession is um, an economical one. Because yeah. if you can't get into the government sponsored programs, which have only exists in like, I think Sweden, I think Norway has it as well, possibly Denmark, Finland, and I think France. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the only places I've ever heard about them. If you, if you don't do that, you either need to get into an airline sponsored program which are very few and mm -hmm. you know far among between them or you need to self-sponsor it and then if you tell people that you need to self-sponsor it they will ask well how much is it <laughs> and the answer to that is anything between fifty thousand euros up to one hundred and fifty thousand euros for the same certificates yeah. the same licenses and after you recover from a heart attack then you start your training <laughs> exactly after yeah. they you know when they turn back from their bluish face uh, <laughs> state but anyway the, the answer the, the question is then i can't afford that no one can afford that right. none of my family can afford that but then i always I, I have some friends um if you follow the channel you might remember that i i did a segment called mentor cadets about two years ago uh, that was me interviewing people in different stages of training nice. um, with different backgrounds, right? Yeah. Both girls and boys and both integrated and modular. And I have one guy there, um, Dufrik, who's doing his training right now, who, who just didn't have the money to do this. But he had the determination and the stamina and the will. So he has been, you know, bootstrapping his training. He's been working. He was working as a lumberjack, I think. He's been oh, working wow. as a, a, you know, as a theory flight school. Yeah. He's been just with his family and small kids as well, Jeez. just saving up every single euro or pound that he could get, and subsequently, step by step, has been paying for his training. And I think he'll be finishing his training now in the uh, in the end of spring. Good for him. You have a goal. Yeah, uh, this is what you want you have to do. A goal. Got to do it. <laughs> yeah, you do it. Yeah. That's the thing. You 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 sell. You know, you sell cupcakes on the streets yeah. if you need to. No one's gonna feel sorry for you in twenty years and you say, "Hey, I really wish I was a pilot. It was just too hard, or I couldn't find a way to do it." No one's gonna feel sorry for you. You just need to go ahead and fully go for it. Send it. Yeah. Go for it. Do whatever it takes. Sell cupcakes, like I said. Be a lumberjack. Become a fireman to help you pay for your for your flight training, or just to give you some extra cash to live on. So. Do exactly. whatever you can. 
it can be done, yeah. providing that you are you are you're well, you know that you're physically well, uh-huh. um, and that you can get through your medical examination and stuff. If you can do that and you have the capacity. Oh, oh, by the way, I have to add one more thing to that thing I would tell people to do. Go for okay? it. Okay, and that is, I always recommend people before they start investing large sums of money to do a suitability test. Okay. There are uh, places in Sweden, for example, there are these airline psychologists. Um, freelance airline psychologists that you can go to and they can do an examination of you like do you have the stuff basically right. and that's not the stuff to get the tri- flight training done it's it's to actually get through the airline interviews later on that's good yeah I, I, I recommend people to do that for the simple reason that you don't want to do all of the training paying all of that money to then find out that actually there was part <laughs> of your personality that wasn't really suitable for this that would be that, rough that would be rough. That's oh. better to find out at an early stage because most of us can most of us can do this, but there are some personality traits that that just you know Don't either dive. you need to work yeah. hard on or it it doesn't work. For sure. So I, I always recommend people to do that. Perfect. Well, Peter, I appreciate you coming on and talking about that. I I love your story and I kind of just love what you have to say and love your outlook on the career and how you you invite people to ask you questions and it's something that you really really love answering questions and helping people go about their career so i appreciate you coming on and i think people are really going to get a lot out of this um well, thank you to, yeah just thank you and I, I would love to have you on again at some point we'll we'll figure it out and maybe one day we can do a meetup if you ever come to, to chicago or if i ever come over to europe Oh, absolutely. I would yeah. love to come over because one problem that I have is that a large percentage of my uh, my viewers are from America. Yeah. Um, and I would love to be able to come and do a meetup, um, possibly together with you or together with someone yeah. else. It's it, it would be it would be fantastic. You should go to Oshkosh. That would be I should go to uh, Oshkosh. I know you should make it a priority. <laughs> Bring your family. They would love it. And then you can, uh, actually, that that's something that I that I that I think I'm going to be looking into. Yeah, you can. Uh, Chicago is probably where you'd fly into, and that's where I live. So you can take them to the Excellent. big windy city, show them around, be fun. Uh, I'll uh, I'll 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 keep you to that. Perfect. Well, uh, like I said, thanks for coming on. Um, yeah, I I appreciate it, and I can't wait to get this out. Perfect. Looking forward to hearing the uh, result as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye. And that is a wrap of episode number fifty one. Aviation, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot the pilot, or email me at pilot the pilot HQ at gmail.com. Happy flying, Aviation.